0: I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is one of those people I always enjoy spending time talking to and was really looking forward to having on the show. I first met him when he was running SCORE's North American PNC operations, when he would often appear at insurance conferences I was chairing in New York. Back then, Jean-Paul Conoscente was unfailingly charming, calm and very straightforward and open in his approach, and always a great asset to any media event. Some time has passed since my last encounter with him, and in that time, he has been promoted to CEO of Score Global PNC and elevated to the Executive Committee. So I'm very pleased to report that he is still as friendly and approachable as he ever used to be. In this podcast, we talk about pretty much everything that has affected the reinsurance market – today and in the run-up to the one-on-one renewals. And from lost trends and price rises, reserving and price adequacy to COVID disputes and insure tech, Jean-Paul gives a straight and honest answer to every single question I ask him. Listen on and you'll see what I mean. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day. Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today.
0: Jean-Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to the Voice of Insurance. There's been a lot of changes in SCORE at the top and congratulations obviously, on your much more senior role that you've taken up in the last couple of years. Now that we're moving into a, a new era for SCORE, a post-Kessler era, what do you think we should expect from SCORE? Well, thanks, Mark. I,
2: I think... We can expect from SCORE very similar behavior from the way we've behaved in the past. The philosophy doesn't change. The risk appetite hasn't changed. Our approach to client hasn't changed. And I'd say both Laurent as CEO, as well as the rest of the COMEX, have been working with Denis for a very long time. And so the culture at SCORE is very strong and will continue under, under Laurent. Plus the fact that Denis remains our chairman and interacts a lot with, uh, with our CEO. So the philosophy of score and let's say the, the way we behave with our clients and with the marketplace should be very similar to the past. You should see no difference. So it's just real just
0: continuity, keep doing more of the same? More of the same. It's been very successful in the past and should continue to be very successful in the future. Well, let's talk a bit about the market. We've had a couple of years of adjustment, general increases in, in insurance and reinsurance premiums. Now that we've had that, are you happy more or less with overall rate adequacy? First of all, reinsurers are never happy. <laughs> but overall, the market is very fragmented.
2: So rate adequacy really varies by geography and by a by line of business. We think we're getting better rate adequacy in some European markets. We're getting decent rate adequacy on the insurance side. On reinsurance, we're still very cautious in the U.S. and feel that rate adequacy is not quite there yet on, on U.S. casualty and U.S. property, as well as on the European casualty. I think there's still ways to go on the rate adequacy.
0: Yeah, On that U.S. side, is that because there's a greater degree of uncertainty about loss trends? It's not
2: just loss trends. It's the claim inflation we've seen both on the property and the casualty in the U.S., casualty. And we talked about, you know, a lot of social inflation. The external private equity funding of litigation continues unabated and is actually increased in the U.S. And so I think that funds a lot of the social inflation that we see materializing in the, in the claims. And all you have to do is look at the amount of investment made in claims on COVID in the U.S., trying to prove that COVID is a physical loss is tremendous. And so that will continue, I think, and accelerate probably in the future. On the property side, it's the not only the, the cost of material that's increased with COVID, the cost of lumber, the cost of all materials, but as well, the fact that the marketplace allows independent adjusters to come in and pay basically the insured a certain amount of, of loss and claim and get the benefit of any inflation of the claim for themselves And the assignment of benefits is a good example in Florida of that problem being completely out of control. So I think even though the price increases have been significant in the US, our view is that it's barely kept pace with the increase of the loss cost and rate adequacy is still not there. And as an example, all you need to do is look at the combined ratio of companies in the US and you see that
0: very few have made profit. Right. So what do you think about things like that with the assignment of benefits? Is that a failure of the insurance industry in itself? Surely only that demand. If you're a homeowner and someone comes to to pay you money, then you just take the money and fix your roof or whatever it is. If it was the insurance industry that was on the front door quicker, maybe you wouldn't have any space with independent adjusters to come and pay those claims and and then inflate them. I think it's a result of the, the
2: lobbying of the trial lawyers being much more efficient than the lobbying of the insurance companies in many states. And you can see in the legislature of many states where there's issues You know, many of them are are former trial lawyers, Yeah, whereas very few of them are
0: former insurance uh, executives. Then we need to get in there as well, don't we? We need to lobby harder than they do, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. So is it right to summarize what you just said about the market generally, that if I'm asking you for bright spots in the market, you'd say that Europe is brighter than North America at the moment?
2: That's our view. I think Europe, what we call global lines, so it's specialty areas, marine, engineering, credit, insurity, we think um, are, are bright spots as well as specialty insurance in general, especially on the short tail lines, we, we
0: view as, as very attractive. You've had this long-term commitment to the channel syndicate in London. Obviously, it's not always been easy. Obviously, I mean, it's been a very difficult market that you've, you've built that through, and I mean, consistently difficult market. Yeah, you know, the market is with you, as if you're seeing on all those specialty lines, the sort of lines that you'd be seeing in the London platform, and the Lloyds platform. Do you think that turnaround, you've had a bit of a turnaround there, do you think that turnaround's now complete?
2: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's been complete. It's been significant cost reduction in terms of internal costs and acquisition costs, as well as a refocusing on the lines of business. I think when we started the Channel Syndicate, there was a lot of focus on binding authority business on, I'd say, standard vanilla lines of business that were very uh, commoditized. My view is the value of Lloyd's is really much in the specialty lines of business, And what we saw when we analyzed our book is we saw the commoditized lines of business were unprofitable, but the specialty lines of business were profitable. And so the refocus and sort of turnaround on channel has also been a refocusing of the book on those specialized lines of business. And we've seen those lines being, you know, very profitable. And so going forward... Really, what we want to lose use our, our core uh, channel syndicate uh, is sort of our leader into specialized lines of business. You know, cyber, for example, is led by our channel syndicate. Political risk is led by a channel syndicate. Political violence, legal expenses. So sort of very specialized
0: products where we think the, the Lloyd's environment is very conducive to, to those lines of business. So it sort of suits a higher added value, and then perhaps you can live with a slightly higher expense sometimes of doing things there. Exactly. I mean, although the, the expense, the acquisition expenses remain very high and remain challenging, yeah. I think that makes it easier. I presume it's still relatively higher cost to do business in Lloyd's than anywhere else. It is. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a bit more about COVID. And you mentioned it earlier, but earlier in the year, I read an article, an interview with you that hinted that some of your growth at One had come from perhaps taking a more accommodating approach, or at least a more I don't know, friendlier approach as a reinsurer, a more partnership approach with some of your students on the COVID issue? Are you trying to buy market share by being nicer than everyone else? <laughs> yeah, I don't think i say accommodating. I think I said partnership. Yeah, And that's exactly what we did
2: is, I think nobody in the marketplace really expected COVID to flow as a PNC loss. You know, today at SCORE, we've reserved about 1.1 billion euros of claims and 40% of that is on the PNC side. And so I don't think any of us expected this to be such a, a large PNC loss. So when when the clients came with their claims, the way they aggregate the claims, especially in the European market uh, on the Catexcel treaties, uh, what we did is rather than taking a, an approach of saying this is not a covered peril, we asked them for additional information to try to understand and engage with them to try to better understand their reasoning since we're trying to learn about this loss and understand how as an industry we should tackle it. So I I think the clients appreciated the fact that compared to other reinsurers who rejected them outright, we engaged with them and actually had a constructive discussion with them. doesn't mean we're accommodating. I I think we still are one of the leads in the European market, and we think it's important that we take a responsible approach to how these claims are, are assessed. And so... I wouldn't say accommodating, but we were definitely engaging with our clients to understand. And when we have a different point of view, we're, we're trying to make them understand our point of view yeah. and then
0: see if we can come to some agreement. So if we are going to have disputes, as an observer, you'd always say, well, they're bound to happen where we're talking about aggregation and and the definition of an event and and all that kind of stuff, and and that's going to happen in excess of loss. Would you agree with that? And do you think some disputes are likely to happen, i.e. reinsurance disputes are likely to happen in this sort of area? Because they've been set aside so far, of course. I think there's a high likelihood of some
2: losses going to arbitration. And actually, some of the arbitration have already started in some cases. I think the you know the main issue is around aggregation and what is an event and what is the cause. And so it really uh, goes back to how each treaty is drafted and what the, the clauses are. In some cases, the difference between the view that's taken by the insurer and the view taken by the reinsurer is so large, it seems unlikely that a commercial compromise is likely.
0: And overall on COVID, obviously, you've put up your very large reserves, all IBNR, IBNER, in the US, it looks like that definitely on the casualty side, there are going to be claims or there are ongoing claims and there are plaintiffs really funded and ready, filing in court every week on this angle. From my experience in Europe, or certainly I've focused a lot on the UK in some of my work, talking to claims experts and asking them about this. And it seems to have been, and even I was down at a major conference earlier in the month, and there was a large presentation from a very large global PNC player, saying that they, in the UK, they still actually hadn't had a claim on the liability side for COVID. And they're a huge insurer present in, it in all markets. So what's your feeling in terms of the overall reserving? A lot of these losses are, are going to come in in the US, but do you think there's a feeling at some point we might be able to take down some of these European reserves if we're not going to see these things change in court?
2: Honestly, I, I think the amount of reserves today between Property and casualty are mainly on the property side. Yeah. There's very few, even in the US, when you look at the amount of litigation going on in the US, there isn't that much about casualty. The bulk of them right now are about property losses and about business interruption, loss of income. And it's very similar in Europe. I think what you said is correct. We've seen very few litigations on on casualty in Europe and don't expect very many. So I think that the bulk of the uncertainty relies on on the property lines of business. Right.
0: If we say this global, we've got this global industry reserve of 100 billion, and we've only seen about 45 of it so far, if you talk to an analyst, that big gap is is probably in the casualty somewhere because we just haven't seen enough material claims.
2: Well, I think one large line of business where we expected many claims was was trade credit and credit insurity. And because we expected the economy to be heavily impacted and and many businesses going bankrupt. In reality, we didn't see that because governments intervened very strongly, put in place... Different schemes in different countries, as well as the trade and, and and surety insurers entering the crisis in a much better state than they were at the beginning, than they were at the beginning of the financial crisis. And with the I'd say assistance of the government schemes in place, they were able then to, while writing that risk, re-underwrite their book at the same time, push rate increases shrink limits and refocus their book on lines of business less prone to economic downturn and as a result the trade credit and surety insurers perform very well there's been very few losses in reality that have emerged from COVID in that line of business the question mark is now that the government schemes are, are broadly been withdrawn in many countries would that wave of bankruptcies happen now and so was it just a delay of one year or was the crisis averted altogether? And this is where I think the question mark remains.
0: But I suppose they've been able to re-underwrite their book. They've had the benefit of almost like being a property cat and seeing this hurricane coming a year ahead and knowing to reduce your aggregates. It's quite a luxury, isn't it? That's our view, is that even if the crisis does emerge and none of us have a crystal ball,
2: I think the, the portfolio is a much better position than it would have been a year ago. And so the impact should be much more than it could have anticipated a year ago.
0: Something else that obviously, in terms of reserving, before COVID, we're still openly worrying as an industry about potential casualty reserve deficits in the US. And now that we've had all these pricing corrections, do you think that worry has receded in terms of we've been able to price our way through any of this problem?
2: This is where a difference of opinion emerges. Our view is that it remains a large issue in the U.S. for all players, insurers and reinsurers. And the price diminishes that issue, but doesn't make it go away. So I think the old underwriting years still have issues. And as we see, social inflation is increasing and not plateauing or decreasing. And even on the business we write today, you know the the knowns, but you don't know the unknowns. And so I think on the risks that we, we know today, Maybe the the business is adequate, but there's so much uncertainty. You talked about COVID liability is one area of uncertainty. There's been, you know, the emergence of other types of liability, you know, climate change liability, for example, is, is one of the emerging risks where we have very few cases today that we can, you know, build triangles on, but that is definitely an emerging risk should be priced into the business we
0: write today. And in most cases, it's not. That's interesting. We should probably talk about ESG and I've got that down as something I wanted to ask you about. So... ESG, this has become the sort of three-letter acronym of this year. It's just, it really emerged. And obviously, we were talking before about, probably would have said CSR, you know, corporate and social responsibility. And now that's emerged into something else. And we're into a situation where obviously environmentalists are pressuring the industry quite very effectively and doing a really good job of kind of holding the industry to account about coal, for example, thermal coal, and getting a lot of commitments out of the industry. We're in this transition period of, say, the next 15 to 20 years We've got a lot of clients out there who probably need cover while they transition, and there are whole economies that are sort of 80 90% reliant on some of these fuels that we do want to phase out, and we probably all agree now that we want to phase them out. How is the industry going to balance that? Obviously, the need to comply with all the ESG legislation, but at the same time, the need to support those clients as they transition you know, to much greener technology.
2: Yeah, I think as an industry, there was some level of complacency where I think as an industry, We have a lot of knowledge about the climate change, as an example. As an industry, we published and participate in many forums on the scientific research as such. But most of it was really with a view of what happens 30 years, 40 years, 50 years from now. And as a result, I think a lot of the approach has been to assume that climate change was going to be something gradual, And since most of the PNC business renews on a yearly basis, that we would adjust this on a yearly basis. I think what we've seen over the past five years is an acceleration of impact of climate change, as well as combined with a globalization of the world economy. And so some losses, insured losses emerging in some countries and some areas that you would not expect to be such a significant impact to the industry. So the two combined make it such that the climate change has become on the forefront of the industry and not a problem that we need to solve every year for the next 30 years, but a problem we need to solve in the immediate future. Because if the last five years is a trend of the, of the next five years, definitely the, the way we approach the risk, the way we price the risk is inadequate. So I think there's, there's a much more focus on how to operationalize climate change into our business today Rather than waiting for it to emerge and have, you know, two, three, four years of, you know, looking back to, to determine what we should do. So I think many companies, many regulators as well are, are focused on, on, on this issue. As an industry, we joined the, the net zero insurance alliance this year, trying to be proactive rather than waiting for the regulators to make up the rules and for us to adapt is to proactively decide what can we do as an industry to underwrite business with a net zero. Objective. I think that's going to be when we talk about negatives, you know, exiting coal, you know, exiting some of the industries that are bad CO2 emitters. But I think a lot of it is also going to be how can we support industries or technologies that actually provide an alternative? So of course everybody thinks about solar panels or wind farms, but there's new technologies like hydrogen is something that's quite new and emerging where we're playing also an active role as a reinsurer in that industry, trying to better understand what are the risks of developing hydrogen plants and supplying power from hydrogen plants. Another one is, is trying to develop insurance products. For example, for forest owners, they can act as carbon sink and rather than, you know, making money by cutting down trees and selling the lumber could also have sources of revenue from just planting trees and becoming a carbon sink to offset some of the industries that can't diminish their CO2. So I think, I think there's a lot of innovation that's going to come from this area, both in terms of technologies as well as in terms of insurance
0: products. You spoke there about this perception of, of a rising trend, and we can probably all agree that the mean is increasing. Of This is of cat events probably driven by climate change. The mean is increasing. But there's a sense now, for me, it feels very much like the beginning of 2006, where we'd had 2004 with all those cats that weren't, you know, there were more of an aggregate event of you know five or six hitting landfall, and then suddenly you had KRW the year afterwards. And then by 2006, everyone's saying, right, 2006, we're going to have 30 to $40 billion cat events every year forever, and this is the new normal. And then, of course, we had 10 years with nothing. We can probably all agree that the mean is going up slowly, relatively slowly, but are you being a bit wishful thinking or a little bit sort of just... Saying things that suit you as a reinsurer at the moment to say, it's going to be like this every year. When we know in our own hearts, obviously as statisticians, as, as insurers, we know that things will revert to the mean and we'll probably get a couple of clean years every now and again. I think the difference
2: with 2004, 2005, 2006 is that was focused on, I'd say, call them model perils or well-modeled perils, such as hurricanes. And we had the same, you know, with European windstorms at the beginning of 1999, 2000. I think the big difference today is most of the, the insured losses we're seeing are not so well-modeled perils, and the industry is calling secondary perils. So it's hailstorms that happened in Central Europe in June. It's floods happening in Europe in July. It's, you know, a freak winter storm in Texas. It's a derecho in the Midwest. You know, last year, it's the type of events that I don't think the industry understands well or prices well. So I think that's the big difference. I don't think we've seen an increase of hurricanes necessarily, or an increase of large Japanese typhoons, or an increase of significant European windstorms. What we've seen is an increase of these perils that were not really viewed by the industry of capital-threatening perils but have eroded much more significantly than expected the margins of all companies. And this is what's showing that the pricing, starting with the insurance pricing, is inadequate and is not reflecting the new reality of those perils, driving significant losses, not to the point of threatening the capital of companies, but definitely threatening the profitability of companies.
0: Yeah. Somewhere else that's a maturing line of business where, you know, losses are really coming in and probably everyone can agree that the rates are not adequate is cyber. What's your view on cyber? Obviously, you're leading cyber through channel. Ultimately, we've had a, a systemic risk loss in the pandemic. I mean, cyber, would you agree it is ultimately, it has an element of systemic because you know it's the insurance of, of systems itself It is literally systemic. Well, how insurable is it ultimately for the big type of loss that may happen here? Obviously, we're dealing with this attritional problem and a quite severe attritional problem. It's frequency and severity, but there's also cat exposure, which we haven't actually seen yet. What's your view of cyber as we're going about this re-underwriting? And obviously it's a very immature class and it's got to its first market turn. What's your overall view of how insurable it might be on a systemic basis? I think that was from the onset, sort of the concern of of all
2: insurers, reinsurers was, you know, the systemic nature of, of the risk and So accumulation has really been the the focus of all companies as this this line of business develops. I think today, you know, we can talk about price adequacy afterwards, but in in terms of capacity, the driver behind the fact that there's more demand and supply overall for cyber is explained by the fact that companies are managing their aggregations very carefully and all have in mind the systemic nature of this peril. And I think demand for the product will only grow whereas the supply won't grow because it's a matter of of companies' capital and risk appetite. So I I think the only way to to better match the demand with the supply is to put in place some either government schemes or bringing in alternative capital that might have an appetite for this type of peril. And so I think the systemic nature is basically the driver between the fact that capacity is going to be constrained until there's a better solution in place. In terms of the price adequacy, as you say, it was a very immature product, so nobody really knew, you know, the type of losses. We we all projected type of losses can come through, but there was not a lot of experience to be able to decide, you know, whether the price was adequate or not. I think the difficulty with the peril is also it's a morphing, it's a morphing peril. You can say climate change is also making a cat a morphing peril, but cyber, as soon as you figure out uh, one type of protection. There's some smarter hackers that figure out a better way to extract money from, from cyber. So I think as an insurer, it's a very difficult line of business to, to price adequately. Uncertainty drives price increases. I think you know, at some point as well, if the price becomes too expensive, customers don't buy the product anymore. Yeah. So I think the future is really trying to define the product better. If you provide very broad coverage, you're almost certain of underpricing the product. So it's trying to maybe narrow down the coverage to what you think you, you know and can price. And then as, as new needs emerge, you know reassess them and price them afterwards. And for example, ransomware, none of the, the market players really viewed it as large a problem as it has been for the industry over the last two, three
0: years. As the industry matured, of course, the hackers didn't know that everyone was insured. And now, I've, now the hackers know who is insured and they also know what sort of limits they've got. So they know what to ask for. So I remember in early seminars that somebody was saying, "Yeah, we had a, a very valuable piece of folder was was locked by a hacker, and they only wanted 100 dollars to release it." And they didn't realize they had no idea that the information it contained in that folder was was worth millions. But uh, <laughs> but now I think they know they're better at doing what they're doing. They know the value of the things they're embargoing.
2: It's raised questions from regulators. Uh, for example, in France, the regulator has been asking the question whether it should be legal to be insured for ransomware, and that's raised sort of a not just a moral question, but also, you know, if insurers are no longer allowed to provide ransomware, but the, I'd say the, the insureds don't have any protection, it helps the insurers, but it doesn't really help the businesses that are being hacked. So I think it's a, it's a complex problem to try to solve. Insurers are just part of that uh,
0: environment. It's interesting the way that insurance has always come up against the morality of society, actually, as it modernized. Um, you know, when Cuthbert Heath first did theft, insurance, it was a moral outrage in Edwardian Britain, because it was just like you're incentivizing people to go and steal things because you're insuring them. You know, And of course, we wouldn't think twice about that being a normal standard coverage. And of course, yeah, K&R, again, has always been slightly left to the side of being a slightly gray area morally for insurance, but always really interesting. So it is interesting. I could do a whole program about the way that insurance comes up against morality, but it's good for you to spot that and to talk about that. It is really interesting. But of course, yeah, I think I'm sure regulators are going to have to accept that this is Going to become quite a standard insurance. I'm sure that probably history will be on our side that we're probably doing the right thing. Anyway, but that was a bit of an aside. Let's go back to the markets. We've had, it's been interesting, obviously, one of these inflection points in the market where we've had new startups. And I read something, an interview, I think, in the Insurance Insider, where you said that new ed- entrants had made a dampening effect on price increases. So has this class of 2020, obviously, they've been much more kind of specialty focused or whilst they have written quite a lot of property caps to start with, probably as an easy way of getting cash flow in, because obviously you can do it quite lean and you can do it from Bermuda and you don't have to have a huge amount of operations. But their stated intention has been more to get into specialty, for example, which obviously takes longer because you need to hire lots more people and have offices on the ground. That class of 2020, it starts to make any more noticeable impact in the market, in the wider market since that time that you spoke. It was probably after renewals.
2: Yeah, I think uh, what we see is that they've had the most influence, I'd say, in the U.S. market, primarily in U.S. casualty, but also on on some of the U.S. property uh, renewals. You know, as you said, most of them, as an intent, stated that they want to develop in specialty insurance. takes time to get the license, takes time to hire the teams, and it takes time for the portfolio to ramp up. Therefore, reinsurance is probably a, a way for them to get premium in the door very quickly, pay for expenses and allow them then to develop their specialty insurance platform afterwards. And so what we've seen from them is still a disciplined market overall, but probably more accommodating stance relative to brokers and to clients in terms of commissions on, on proportional business, and a view that since the prices on the insurance side are increasing, that should be sh- sufficient for the margin, to justify flat or sometimes accept uh, higher commissions. So I think this is where they had the influence, not necessarily as lead lines, but enough of a following line that it sort of put commercial pressure on the rest of the panel to sort of go along with with the terms that the markets and the clients were marketing.
0: So it's at the margins where you'd expect them to be, and of course, at the margins where the price action actually happens, isn't it? Yeah. So they were described by many as, oh, they're just a drop in the bucket. But I suppose if your order is one bucket... (laughs) then the little drop makes all the difference to get it at the price you probably wanted.
2: There's probably, I'd say, a few drops in the bucket, and brokers were very clever enough to leverage that very efficiently.
0: Yeah, brokers are good, aren't they? They were good at all this kind of stuff, yeah. Going into one are we going to have continued rate momentum? And if not, did you see a time when if rates start to taper off, we might go back to consolidation phase within the reinsurance business?
2: I think, honestly, I don't see any driver or any reason for prices not to increase. If you look at property in the U.S., casualty in the U.S., we discussed loss trends are increasing. At a minimum, price increases need to follow loss trends. In Europe, a number of clients have been making the case that European CAD has been very profitable over the years, and this event is just not an unexpected event. But again, if you go back to the type of peril that caused it, how well are we pricing Convective storm and flood in our pricing. The answer is not very well. And so it's not just the treaties that have been affected that should have price increases. It's all the business because unless flood is specifically excluded from all the business, we should take another look at that peril and make sure that pricing of it is well accounted for in the price we offer and say in most cases it's not today. I don't see any reason anywhere where there should be stable pricing or price decreases. I think. If somehow this supply of capacity is so abundant that it gets to that state, it causes a question of sustainability for the reinsurance industry. Reinsurance industry has not made money as an industry over the past five years. The return generated by reinsurance companies is not to the level expected by investors. You can see, you know, the book value of insurers reinsurance companies remains very, very low. You know, it's, it still has either a zero or a one times book value for most companies, whereas when you look at other types of industries, have a two, have a three, have a four times a book value. I think as an industry, we have to make sure that we at least have a business model that is able to produce sustainable profitability. Merger and acquisitions is a way to try to postpone that issue. And I think you know, many companies are faced with this problem, so M&A might be a solution for a number of them. I think, regardless of what the pricing does at one one, I think we'll have M&A in the industry because it's a problem that the whole industry is facing today.
0: Yeah, in terms of that dynamic, I suppose throughout the last couple of years, most people have said that it's been your seedants that have been pushing the rate. So you have, particularly on the proportional side, you've just been able to be happy to go along for the ride with them and say, well done, everyone. I mean, we've been asking you to properly increase original rates for the last 10 years, and finally, now you've done it, and we can all benefit from that. Do you think there might come a time when it'll be the reinsurers doing a bit more pushing at this renewal? I think so, but it's been
2: interesting to see the decorrelation between the insurance market and the reinsurance market. If you go back 10 years or further in time, Reinsurance was really the driver behind insurance price increases. Clearly, I'd say since 2008, that's not been the case at all. The drivers of the insurance price increases has been the lack of financial income because of low interest rates and the fact that some of the large insurance companies, including Lois, were were loss-making businesses. And so, Regardless of how cheap or how expensive reinsurance was, they decided to perform remediation on the business. You know, we saw the hardening on the insurance side happening much faster, much earlier than on the reinsurance side. I think now reinsurance is kind of squeezed between retrocession, which has been hardening the past two, three years, and insurance, where you still want to write profitable business, but you're not alone. The capital remains plentiful. But as I said, I think as an industry, we all face a problem of being able to produce sustainable profits, and that should drive price increases.
0: Changing the subject almost completely, we've had an interesting time for beer Insurer with all your main three suppliers going through merger permutations and connotations, and have the latest iteration of that in the Willis-Ree Gallagher merger has now been referred to the UK Competition Authority. So... In your opinion, do you think Gallagher buying willis Re is a positive or negative for competition in reinsurance broking?
2: I think having more than two strong brokers is good for, for competition. I think willis Re, when it was part of Willis, was a strong broker and remained so. So I think the acquisition of Gallagher just kind of provides continuity of that. We've also seen the emergence of, say, other brokers, Tiger Risk, Lockton Re, BMS you know, very far behind Guy Carpenter and Aon Rhee, but trying to catch up and trying to find their their place in that marketplace. So I think whether it's Gallagher or somebody else buying Willis Rhee, as long as it provides them a solid platform to continue competing with Aon and Guy Carpenter, it's good for the industry.
0: Changing the subject, it's a bit more blue sky. We've had this fantastic investment in technology and this kind of awakening where the technology industry has suddenly discovered insurance over the last five years. And obviously, you've been a big part of that at SCORE. And the interesting development has been this algorithmic underwriting at a syndicate at Lloyd's. And I'm sure, you know, being part of the Lloyd's community, you'd be observing that. So I wanted to ask you about that. How far do you think algorithmic underwriting might be able to go up the insurance and reinsurance value chain? to... How much automatic stuff can we do? Obviously, you know, you write treaties, which is portfolio underwriting. So do you think someone might be able to write a treaty, a score treaty automatically?
2: I think it relates really to the commoditization of business. So I think if there's a line of business that's very commoditized, it lends itself well to algorithmic underwriting as long as the wordings are standardized. And that's been an issue for the industry for many years. The wordings are not standardized is the problem we see with COVID, for example. And so relying on algorithmic underwriting when each wording has a little twist to it that you can't pick up in the algorithmic underwriting is very dangerous. I think if you get to a state where all wording is standard, the risks are well understood from both sides as they're described by the the wording, then you can perform algorithmic underwriting. I think it has a value for types of treaties or, or portfolios that are very vanilla standardized and a type of risk that's very commoditized. But I think before doing so, wordings have to be really looked at very carefully. There's a real danger of trying to automate underwriting if you can't also standardize the wording because you'll be taking a risk that you think is plain vanilla where the wordings might uh, introduce some risk that you had, you're not prepared for.
0: Yeah, so if you go deep into wordings, you always find very weird things because they tend to be uh, you know renewed year after year and no one reads them. It was interesting about standardization of wordings. I'd say perhaps in the US market, they would have said that they've had a lot more standardized wordings over the years with different agencies that do that and file those wordings in perhaps one of the only yep. instances where you'd say actually that 50 state regulation actually has probably helped just because the only way of getting around the inconvenience is to actually standardize wordings. And that helped with COVID probably in the US to help codify it better. What about data as well? Standardization of data coming along at the fast enough pace so that we can fully digitize the industry in the way that you can really look into one of your students' book of businesses and really so that your analysts and your underwriters can really drill down to through the risk and analyze that portfolio almost as well as the insurer does itself right? so that you have an equality of information whereas of course the problem we've always had in reinsurance is that we've had totally asymmetric amount of information you know we've only had a tiny little presentation on you know 20 page fax on which to try and price a treaty renewal for example
2: I think we're still very far away from that. Part of the problem is, as you said, is a a symmetric situation between insurers, brokers, and reinsurers. And so you know, with insurers and brokers having most of the data relative to reinsurers, what is the incentive for them to share all of that data with reinsurers? Right now, there isn't an incentive or commercial incentive. And that's why I think you've seen Better development on the back office applications on the, the premium, on the claims, the e-placement. You know, for example, RushleyCon were part of the organization trying to standardize messaging and automate in our system, the processing of premium and claims. The reason for, I'd say the good takeoff of that issue is there is no asymmetry of information. If you want the claim page, you have to set a certain amount of information and otherwise it doesn't get processed. There's been a lot of initiatives for e-placement. And if you go back in time, you might remember something called Renet going back to the the 80s or 90s. And there's been several generations of similar projects over the years. At the end, many of them failed to advance because there isn't a commercial incentive for the data holders to share their data. And I think that remains a problem.
0: I don't remember. I was trying to remember the names of all the different ones, but one of them I think it sounded a bit like Imodium, but I think emodium is for constipation or something, or, or the opposite. But anyway, was it Iridium? Or Anyway, I've been through every iteration of these things, and some of them I trialed myself. I remember trialing something called Broker 2000 back in 1996, and it sounded so futuristic. And of course, finally, we've got to PPL. It's a cultural thing, really, isn't it? That sharing of data. It's probably, we know we've got the ability to share data at the touch of a button, but it's more that you'd say it's a cultural reticence to say this. people still have a cultural understanding that that data, that they should keep that data to themselves rather than help share it out to get the insights. And so as a reinsurer, do you think you should be trying to sell that partnership more to those people to say, hey, if you share with us, you're going to get better insights. You're probably going to get better pricing. We're going to help find problems in your book that you haven't found yourself, and we can really go for it. So in terms of, are you trying hard enough to get people to share and see the benefits of sharing? I would say the more people share, the better it's going to be because they're going to get a view. They've only got a tiny one percent view of the market, and they can help benefit by seeing what the rest of nine percent is really doing.
2: I think as a reinsurer, we definitely try to create that partnership. But I think the issue is not just between insurers and reinsurers; it's also between the insurance companies and their insureds. Where as an insured, if an insurance company comes to you and asks you know millions of questions, you'll go to another one that only asks five questions. And so I think. If you put yourself into the shoes of the customer, you want something that's easy. I, I think the real solution to this is actually the use of external data that can supplement, uh, I'd say, the, the standard information we receive and have a much better view of risk by aggregating this data together. I think, in my view, that's the real solution for the industry to have a better view of risk. You know, there's a reluctance. And if you put yourself, as I said, as a customer, you don't necessarily share all that information. But in reality, information you think is confidential, probably 80% of it is, is publicly available depending on the country you live in. And so, you know, if you're able as a company to tap into that publicly available data or licensed data, then you don't have to ask the questions anymore to those clients and you can just build a view of risk yourself. Yeah. That's where we see acceleration happening, you know, over the past two three years. And I think it's going to continue to accelerate uh, in the next two, three years.
0: So the classic sort of insure tech thing where you, you don't have to ask anyone a question you just ask what their postcode is and that's it. <laughs> and yeah. then you give them a the quote. They already you already know what type of roof they've got and they what type of turbine they're using or whatever it is. You know you know all the pertinent information. In your view we've had this 5 years of uh, inshore tech and you've been very close to it a score. Out of all these new obviously great variety of models emerging and now it's sort of maturing but there's no sign of stopping. We've seen so much funding and funding is only accelerating now as these businesses mature. Which do you think of these models are going to be most likely to succeed? We've seen sort of MGA, very light models, very kind of consumer-focused models, and then full stack insurance models as well. Which do you think of these, or of many of the other models, which most likely succeed in the long term? I think we see two types of companies emerging. One that we call clients of the
2: future that start as an MGA and then at some point in their evolution become insurance companies. And I think those companies will likely survive and at some point be bought by bigger companies. So they have a future. I think it's a a short-term future with the probably acquisition by a larger player, likely in the next five to 10 years. And then you have the types of companies that develop a, a specific technology that helps existing processes. So it could be an insurtech focused on, on fraud detection, focused on payment processing, on, on claims processing, on better underwriting. Of cat perils or other perils, auto repairs. And I think those companies are being integrated by big insurance companies into their systems and they're making the overall process more efficient. So I think, you know, there was always a question will companies be disrupted by intratech like uh, Uber disrupted the taxi industry? My view five years ago, my view today remains the answer is no. I don't think so. But Introtech is really accelerating the transformation of the industry, both in terms of products being sold. You know, we go back to the example you mentioned of Introtech asking three questions to clients and being able to produce a quote. I think that's improvement for the industry of being more customer centric. And then we talked about these companies that have better tools for processing. And that's an improvement of the processing of insurers or reinsurers. Then you also have intratechs that are uh, trying to attack distribution and making it more efficient. And I think that, you know, that will also modernize distribution. So I think intratechs overall are really accelerating the evolution of insurance and reinsurance, but not necessarily disrupting
1: it.
0: That's great. Jean-Paul, thank you so much for giving up your time. I've come to the end of my questions. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you uh, as ever. Good luck with everything. And I hope you'll check in soon and and tell us of your progress and uh, your happiness or not happiness at rates and everything else. So thank you so much. It's always a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com